0: Hi everybody this is Jennifer Mattese and before I proceed I'd just like to um, say a few things first of all I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as I'm enjoying making the podcast. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time doing research and, and looking into uh, different disasters to do and and those sorts of things uh, and doing all sorts of, of different behind-the-scenes stuff, trying to get the podcast out there and get it listened to. So if you do like it, um, thank you so much for listening. Please share with anybody who you think might like it, anybody who you're not really sure might like it, on your Twitter, on your Facebook, on your Tumblr, whatever. Feel free to share the podcast with whoever you want. Um, And also, you know, go ahead and review and rate it on iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever sort of rating system place you have. You know, go ahead and share and and tell people, you know, what you think if you think it's a really great podcast. Um, In relation to that, um, I'd also like to thank Everbright Morning, who is following the podcast very well on soundcloud and on tumblr so you know thanks a lot everbright and i really appreciate you um paying attention and and giving me feedback i'd also like to uh um remind everybody that the next episode that i'm doing uh which is, is the fifth episode is a quote unquote movie break uh, basically because the subject matter of the Podcast is so serious and so depressing most of the time. I wanted to kind of have a break in that, you know, kind of to lighten the mood a little bit, you know, to kind of make everybody feel a little better after listening to four episodes about death and destruction. So, the fifth episode movie breaks are going to be about the disaster movie genre. I like my fake disasters almost as much as I like reading about real disasters. So, The, um, the next episode is going to be about the Poseidon adventure. Um, you know, the, the book it was based on, the original 1972 movie, um, the sequel, inevitable, um, remakes that came along 20 years later. Um, so, you know, the Poseidon adventure is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I can't wait to talk about it, you know, get a little buzzed, sit down talk about disaster movies. So, um, because it doesn't require the kind of research that, um, the um, other episodes do, I should be able to get it out to you by the end of the week to kind of make up for the fact that it's been a little bit of a break between the last episode and this particular episode today. So after all of that, thank you very much for listening. Like I said, my name is Jennifer Madarese and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 4: The Kansas City Hyatt Regency Skywalk Collapse. July 17, 1981. 114 deceased, 200 injured. People didn't even have time to scream. Witness Pat DiNatoli, who was having dinner on a second-floor terrace with his wife when the collapse occurred. Like hell I'm not going to make it. I'm going hunting ducks on October 27th when the season opens survivor Mark Williams responding to a doctor who told Mark's mother following his rescue that he was probably not going to make it from seconds from disaster the story of the Kansas City Hyatt Regency Skywalk collapse starts in 1976 that particular year the Crown Center Redevelopment Corporation commences the building project of the Hyatt Regency in Kansas City Now. Crown Center Redevelopment Corporation is a very long phrase, so I'm just going to kind of shorten the name to Crown for the rest of the podcast. Um, The same with the other two major players in the building of the Hyatt Regency. Those would be Jack Gillum & Associates, which changes its name along the line to GCE International. Um, The name changes a couple of times, basically. The company is an engineering company, and um, I'm going to be calling them Gillum as sort of a collective name, just Gillum. Um, Gillum is a corporation which enters into a contract with Crown on April 4th, 1978. They are led by structural engineer Jack Gillum who was licensed since 1968 and he works with uh, another structural engineer Daniel Daniel Duncan uh, to design the hotel. Now, he was contracted to provide, open quotes, all structural engineering services for a 750-room hotel project located at 2345 McGee Street, Kansas City, Missouri. Now, after this, Gillum and Crown Center, Crown, excuse me, bring in Haven Steel Company. They are actually um, some contracted through Eldred's Construction, which is the general contractor of the building. And on December 19, 1978, um, Eldridge brings in Havens, who are going to fabricate and erect the atrium steel for the Hyatt project. So it's basically the Crown, which is the company that owns the facility and is going to be um, having it built, Gillum, which is the engineering firm, and Havens, which is the group in charge of the steel fabrication. Those are the three names that you need to know. In spring 1978, construction on the hotel begins. Now, like I said, it's 750 room hotel, 40 story tower. What it is, is the center is this huge atrium. Um, you have the forty-story tower off to the left. You have this atrium, and then off to the right, you have this shopping area, it's shopping centers, and and those sorts of things, little little restaurants, that kind of thing. Uh, there's also a revolving restaurant at the top of the hotel. It's kind of, you know, kind of cheesy. You look at this hotel, and at the top, you see this round thing just kind of sticking up out of the uh, the hotel. But that's um, uh, was kind of a big thing in Kansas City, which didn't really have a big fancy reputation back then you know in the in the late 70s so the hotel was seen as a very prestigious thing and the hotel um the hotel's major selling point was this atrium that was going to be in the center of the hotel the atrium was four stories high had a 50 foot ceiling and the main entrance was on the west side of the atrium now that particular side of the atrium is just this four story wall of glass it's just all glass the skywalks were the main feature of this atrium the skywalks were basically exactly what they sounded like Um, these long walkways which stretched across the atrium from north to south so there was one for each of the second Third and fourth floors. They were 200 feet long, and about 15 feet wide. Uh, the third floor walkway was actually slightly wider to accommodate people who were walking to the ballroom on that particular floor. On the second floor, um, you know, it was a little busy, but it was it was a little easier to access from the atrium. So if you wanted to go up to the walkways, that was usually the first one that you went to. So the fourth floor walkway was a little harder to access, it was kind of um, uh, access to a gym and you had to kind of go this out of the way way to get there so normally a lot of people didn't really use it. Uh, they each weighed about 32 tons. I mean they were glass and steel and concrete. Uh, the north ends of the walkways were attached to expansion joints. South ends are, chi- are, are anchored with steel plates. But the main selling points of these walkways were, were that they were held up, for the most part, by hanger rods. The hanger rods were attached to the ceiling of the atrium, and they held up each of these walkways um, not, not separately themselves, they weren't supposed to anyway, supposed to, excuse me, anyway. The third floor walkway was actually um, off to the left of the second floor walkway and the fourth floor walkway, which ran parallel, perpendicular to one, right under, right on top of one another, excuse me. Basically, they ran, you know, alongside one another. And these hangar rods extended down from the ceiling to each of the walkways. Now, you know, obviously with a third floor walkway, you just have the ones coming down from the ceiling to the walkway. In the second floor and fourth floor walkways, because they were lined up one right on top of the other, the hanger rods in the original design that Gillum drew up were 46 feet long. There were six of them. And they ran down in pairs. On each side, one on each side of the walkway in three different spots. So you had six, you know, two and two and two. The way I picture it in my head uh, I, when I was looking at the, the um, plans is basically you have to imagine the, the long straight pieces from Tetris. If you imagine where those blocks were divided up for that, that long piece, that's where these hanger rods were on these two long walkways that were right on top of each other on the second and fourth floor. The hanger rods were connected to the ceiling and they would come down through box beams on the fourth floor down to the second floor. That was the original plan was you would have these long, long hanger rods coming all the way down from the ceiling in one straight line down through these box beams on the fourth floor down to the second floor. Now you're asking what is a box beam? I don't know anything about construction. What is a box beam? Well, a box beam is basically this. What you do is you have these, these beams. And if you imagine, you know, when you think of a metal beam, you think of an I beam. Well, imagine if you will, that somebody places it like an eye on the ground, and slices down vertically through it so that you have, now, you have two pieces that are shaped sort of like C's. Now if you take those two pieces, switch them around, and weld them together, you have a box beam. These box beams were going to be placed underneath the, underneath the walkways, uh, in three separate spots, and what would happen is that the hanger rods would come down through the fourth floor box beams, you know, welded through there. And so basically like a string coming down through the box, you would have. And underneath to hold up the walkways, you had a nut and a washer. So basically you have these, you know, a nut and a washer underneath each each of these. Six nuts, six washers, washers, holding up this fourth floor walkway. And then the rest of the hanger rod goes down to the second floor, and again, another nut and a washer under the second floor walkway. Now, like I said, that was in the original original design. The original design also called for stiffeners, which are sort of another piece of metal which is placed on the... Kind of the left and right side of these box beams, because if you can imagine, you know, that may be a little bit of weight on these box beams for them to hold up with just these hanger rods. So, what the stiffeners would do is add more stability to the box beams and keep them from collapsing. They're basically, you know, just a plate that was on the inside of, of these box beams on the left and the right side to thicken them, you know, basically. Um, But during construction, the design was changed. Uh, It was about January and February 1979 when when, um, the hotel was in the middle of construction. And Haven submits uh, a change of design to Gillum. Haven claims um, they called Gillum for change approval, but Gillum denied receiving the call. The change that they wanted was, just to kind of save money, save time was to, instead of having, you know, six very long hanger rods, which went all the way from the ceiling right down through those box beams on the fourth floor walkways down to the, the, the second floor, instead of that they were going to have 14 foot long hanger rods from the ceilings to the ceiling to the box beams on the fourth floor. And then they would have separate box, uh, separate hanger rods, which reached from the box beams in the fourth floor walkway to those in the second floor walkway. So basically you have two, instead of having one long piece, if you imagine the 46 foot long one that they originally planned, the hanger rods, they would basically cut them in half or cut them in smaller pieces, use one piece to hold up the fourth floor to the ceiling. Then take the second piece, put that through the box beam as well, and that would go down to the second floor. The hanger rods that came down from the ceiling were on the outside of the box beam. And they came down, they went down to the bottom of the box beam on the fourth floor, the nut and the washer go underneath that between that outer hanger rod and the walkway itself was threaded the hanger rod for the second floor. So you have that hanger rod from the fourth floor, then the top of the hanger rod for the second floor, which was held up by another nut and a washer. And that would thread through going down to the second floor. Now, the original design of this hanger rod, you know, design, uh, (laughs) this original hanger rod design was already a bit questionable. Uh, It didn't really live up to, to the Kansas City building codes as it was. The new one didn't do much better. And the stiffeners that were supposed to go into the box beams never went in. Now Gillum receives 42 shop drawings on February 16th featuring the change from Havens, and they return them back to Havens on February 26th stamped with their review and approval. So, as far as Havens knows, they have sent these these new designs to them. And Gillum has, has looked them over, tested them and said, yes, this will work. This is completely safe. And at this point, you know, this is kind of put out of, you know, they, they build it, they set it up and they put it out of their minds. But on October 17th, 1979, over 2,700 square feet of the atrium roof collapses while the hotel is still under construction. The engineering firm Gillum, uh, they claim that um, on three separate occasions, they requested on-site project representation during the construction phase, but these requests were denied by Crown due to the added costs. So there's already a lot of buck passing going on, you know, Um, you it wasn't us, it's, you know, they said this and they said that, but at this point, you know, Gillum calls in an inspection team to find out what's going on with uh, the atrium roof and, and what happened there. Um, the inspection team is contracted to check on the cause of the roof collapse, but they're under no obligation to examine any other part of the atrium. They're just there to look at the roof. Crown retains their own independent engineering firm, Sidon Page, to investigate what caused the roof collapse. On October 20th, Gillum tells the owner in writing that he's undertaking both undertaking both an atrium collapse investigation and a thorough design check of the atrium's roof. Um, so, you know, they, there's at this point, there's two different engineering firms looking into what's going on with the atrium roof. At the same time, they're not looking at these hanger rods. They're looking at the, the roof itself. And in November, they basically both establish, you know, the overall safety of the entire atrium is fine. That's what they say. You know, like I said, they're only looking at the roof. They're not looking at the hanger rods. The hotel itself opens in July of 1980. Um, You know, it's very popular. It's very prestigious. It's very um, fancy, you know, for, for 1980 standards. I mean, if you, if you look at old footage of, of the, the um, hotel, it's, it's clearly built in 1980. The design elements are, are, you know, kind of scream 1980s. Um, and in May of 1981, the hotel starts throwing these tea dances. Now the tea dances are uh, sort of 1940s style dances where they play big band music in the atrium, people get to um, people get to go there and they get to dress up and they get to um, have drinks and, and dance with their friends, dance with their their loved ones, um, you know, have a good time. It's, um, it becomes this really popular thing in the city, you know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not something kids would like, but it's, it's something that grown ups can kind of go and have a social event um, at this hotel. And the skywalks are a pretty big selling point um, to the atrium. So people love to go and, and see these beautiful skywalks. As people, a lot of people say about the skywalks, even, you know, in retrospect, that when you would walk into this atrium and you would see these skywalks and they looked like they were floating on air. That's how light these hanger rods made them look. You know, you you'd see these what looked like, I mean, you know, you, you imagine they were pretty heavy but they were held up by hanger rods. These, these light thin rods. They didn't really look like they were being held up by anything at all. And it was a a very impressive sight to people. So when you would come in for these tea dances, you know, people would see that. And it was a really, um, really great place to go. You would go in Friday nights, five to eighths. They were very popular. So it comes to July 18th, 1981. It's a lovely, warm summer day. Uh, The tea dance is in full swing. Everybody's having a good time. Uh, There's several standing bars around the lobby, so everybody's having drinks. And there are about 1,500 to 2,000 people in the lobby that night. It's very, very busy, very packed. Michael Mahoney is a, a local reporter from KNBC. And he's there to cover the tea dance for an upcoming broadcast. It's very popular, and they're doing sort of a social, you know, look at, you know, kind of a feature. Come see this, this, this dance. You know, a lot of people are having fun. You know, come see, um, you know, they, they dance to like Glenn Miller and, and, and uh, Benny Goodman and all these old, um, old songs, and so it's a lot of, you know, it is a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who are going to these dances, but, um, they're very popular, so the KNBC, KNBC, um, uh, reporters are sent to, uh, to profile it. Michael Mahoney and his cameraman, um, they, you know, they start taking video of, of dancers, musicians, other aspects of the dance, the, um, you know, they're taking, um, video of the band, they're getting, um, Sort of setting shots of the atrium itself and they also get these these general shots shots of people standing on the walkways you know look at these beautiful walkways you know there's people standing up there with the drinks having a good time um, and you know it's really a good atmosphere really a lot of fun at about 704 p.m. Mahoney and his cameraman um, have taken the escalator to the second floor restaurants so that they can get some good shots from up there of the crowd. And they have to stop the video. Um, the battery on the camera is going, so they need to replace the, the battery. They both are crouching on the ground. Uh, they're going through the camera bag, looking for uh, a battery. And at this time witnesses in the atrium describe hearing this loud pop. Pop. It's a very uh, loud metallic pop, according to Mahoney. Now, at this point, box beam 9UE. This is the center box beam connection on the east side of the fourth floor walkway. So basically, fourth floor walkway is on top. These, this center box beam connection on the inside of the atrium, that one it gives way. It basically slides down right in the middle and splits. The fourth floor walkway collapses down onto the second floor walkway. Like I said, snaps right down in the middle. And everything just falls right to the first floor instant, just like that. The south end of the fourth floor, which if you're looking at that big glass wall, that would be on the left. The South end is propped up against the wall at a dangerous angle. This said, this would be the South end of the fourth floor walkway, but everything has fallen to the floor. Everything else is just flat on the floor and understandably chaos erupts. I mean, you have just everything falling glass, steel, concrete, everything falls. It's, like I said, 705. 706 at this point, you know, Mahoney, Michael Mahoney and his cameraman, they get the they get the battery in and they restart the camera. And the video goes from, you know, all these nice scenes of people in, you know, 80s clothes, 80s, you know, just these, these kind of tacky fashions, dancing and having a good time. And then they restart, you know, it goes from that to these awful chaotic scenes of just devastation and terror it's not even um calm f- you know film it is just you can't tell what's going on um you know it's very hard to see everything's gone dark kind of um people are frantic um there's some shots of, of um, y- you know um a foot here a leg there you know not not separated from anything as far as we know but i mean it's not it's a very confusing set of video At this point um because of the collapse a water main for the sprinklers is broken and water is beginning to fill the lobby. So all these people are trapped underneath these these walkways. And not only are they trapped, not only are a lot of them severely injured, but you have water starting to fill the lobby. One survivor named Tom Weir um, said that what he was doing at that point, once, once his water starts to fill up, you know, he's trapped under the rubble, and what he starts to do is he starts to do this process of lie his head down, take a mouthful of water, lift his head up as far as he can, spit it out, take a breath, lay his head back down, start the whole process all over again. At 7.08, the fire department is called, and the police department is called soon after that. Fire department Deputy Chief Arnett Williams sends four pumpers and two trunk co- truck companies to the, to the Hyatt. When Deputy Chief Williams arrived at the Hyatt, he initially thought that the carpet was red. It was actually the color of the blood from the injured staining the water that was flooding the atrium. That so was, you know, not a pretty thing to realize. He set up command post outside the main entrance, and he orders the water and the electricity shut off. But that'll take time. You know, they can't just immediately do that. At 7-12, uh, the fire department at the scene calls for additional support. Uh, quarter after 7, uh, the mayor of Kansas City at the time, uh, Richard Berkeley, gets a call about the disaster, and he actually leaves a party at his home. Uh, to go and and find out what's going on. He tells a story in one of the documentaries about how when he was getting ready to have this party, uh, he saw that somebody had blocked in his driver and he told him, you know, no, you know, we have to be prepared. You have to move the car to make sure that it's clear so that, you know, if there's something happens that, you know, we're able to leave quickly. So um, unfortunately, that did come in um, handy later on. At 7.18, you know, it's 13 minutes after this has happened, and seven ambulances are already on the scene. And not long after that, a, uh, a ca- call for cutting tools goes out, and a few minutes later, a calls for a forklift goes out. They, you know, they're quickly realizing that they need to get... Um, it's not going to be just a matter of getting rubble off these people. They have to get these enormous slabs of concrete off these people. Now, at uh, 7.25 p.m., An emergency medicine specialist, Joe Wackerly, arrives from Baptist Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Wackerly had just finished a 12-hour shift at the hospital and had been, actually, he'd actually been training for a marathon at the hospital. Uh, He'd been going up and down the hospital stairwell uh, when the call came in, and when he heard about it, he, you know, sort of of just threw on scrubs over his, his workout gear and just went to the hotel. Once he got there, he immediately started a triage unit with two other doctors, and he assumed medical leadership of the medical care inside of the hotel atrium. At seven thirty, um, a uh, fire department um, media li- liaison, Joe Galetti, arrives. Uh, he he would say that he he could see bodies protruding from under the skywalks, and you can actually kind of see it in some of the video that Michael Mahoney and his cameraman took. Um, not like I said it's not a pretty sight Um, as of 7 50 p.m. uh, 30 people were confirmed dead and there had been 100 injured that had been taken out firefighters uh, opened the front doors of the atrium to clear out the water at that point so that they could make sure that the people who weren't trapped in there wouldn't drown at the same time construction workers Start arriving at that point with jackhammers and cutting saws to begin breaking up the rubble, so they can get it out of there. Uh, but at that point, they, they see that they're going to need bigger material. Um, the fire, excuse me, the fire department's jacks couldn't handle these huge slabs of concrete. They were just too big. Um, they actually had to bring in jacks that were usually used for lifting houses. That's how how enormous these jacks were. I'm you mean you're talking about sixty four tons of concrete and glass and steel that had fallen down one survivor um was actually described um he actually described how when he was pulled from the rubble he had a shoe clutched in his hands um, and there was a foot and an ankle still in it Uh, he didn't elaborate on whether or not that was all that was in there um if if they were actually still attached to a body or not um it was entirely likely that they weren't um, there were a lot of amputations, as um, uh, Michael Mahoney said, you need to see body parts. So, um, At 8.05, Operation Bulldozer, which was Kansas City's disaster response team, uh, they arrive with these front-end loaders and other equipment. But Deputy Chief Williams can already tell they need bigger tools. So he sends away the bulldozers, but he has them tear out the entrance of the atrium to allow bigger equipment to enter. So they basically go over and just kind of knock out all that glass so that they can um, go through there if need be when other uh, equipment starts arriving. And it quickly does. Within a half an hour, a a heavy crane arrives. Um, But still, I mean, it's very difficult to get in there. Uh, You know, it's very difficult to get this equipment that they need to get in there. To move these big slabs of concrete through you know all of the the metal and glass and everything that's that's um between them and, and the rubble uh, the cranes that have come are moved into a position near the west wall which is that that big glass wall um, as of 10:30 t- pm and that's about the time that michael mahoney Appears on Nightline live to report on the disaster. Um, he has all of his footage, and of course, as he said, you know, it's not the best footage in the world. You kind of, you, when you, something like this happens, you want really great footage. You want, you know, clear footage where you can see what's going on and you can understand what's happening. And you know, unfortunately, if you want to call it that, um, he, you know, he didn't get the disaster as it was happening, so he missed out on that showing how the collapse happened and he also, you know, they were both so stunned at what had happened. The footage that he did get, I mean, you see panicked people and you see, you know, you see scenes of destruction, but it's very quick and very, um, you know, it's not the best footage in the world. It's, it's really not because of that broadcast. Um, they, they were able to kind of make requests for blood donations. And that was one thing that, um, Kansas City was able to do Um, you know uh, people in Kansas City were able to come out and and make those blood donations and and help the survivors um with their medical needs under the rubble um, the survivors were kind of trying to help one another Um, they were trying to keep each other from passing out Um, at this point you know rescuers were getting in touch with them and to help out with the um, rescuers, knowing, you know, who was alive and who wasn't. Um, there were some survivors, survivors um, including Tom Weir, as I mentioned before, who um, were counting off every so often to see how many were alive. And according to Tom Weir, um, when he was doing it with the group that he was with, on um, the first time they did it, there were about 11, 12 people. Um, the second time they did it, a while later, it was seven people who answered. So you didn't get four people who weren't answering anymore. Um, so that number was going down with every um, time. That was, that was something that was very hard for them to, to understand. Um, at about 11.15 p.m. Uh, Jack Gillum and uh, representatives from Crown arrive at the scene. As soon as he walks into that atrium Jack Gillum immediately recognizes the problem when he sees the hanger rods still hanging from the ceiling. But of course there's really nothing they can do at that point, you know. Um, The uh, rescue has to proceed. That's for after this. Uh, The death toll as of 1235 a.m. is over 60. Uh, Dr. Wackerly um, was starting a little upset, um, at least emotionally, because he was really having a hard time with the fact that he had to dismember um, some of the dead to remove some of the victims. Um, When you watch some of these documentaries and and read some of these um, articles, you see that, that people who are being pulled out, um, you know, they'd end up moving a slab uh, to get its survivors and they would find maybe, um, you know, maybe two or three people still alive, but they were tangled up with, you know, a few other people. And, because of the way that they were tangled up, they would have to remove limbs from the dead to take these, these poor people out. And that was hard for him. Um, he said later on, you know, it was really hard to, you know, kind of get this moniker of, of being, um, you know, sort of a hero during this time um, when he really didn't feel like one, you know. Um, a firefighter also mentioned to a newspaper later on that when you had so many people inside the atrium and the electricity was cut off, um, it was kind of building up the heat. You had this closed in space. It was kind of like a big greenhouse and the temperature went way up. It was like 120 degrees inside there. According to him that it must have been 120 degrees inside that atrium. So, you know, first you're injured, then you're trapped, then you're drowning in water that is coming from the, the water main. And, and the next thing you know, all of a sudden, I mean, the heat, was going up. That must have been ex- extremely uncomfortable. Um, during this time, the walkway se- sections are being um, lifted by Crane to, to get people out of there. And, you know, you're kind of getting, um, when you're the rescuers, there's about a thousand people on the scene, you know, working on rescuing people. Uh, it gets difficult after a few hours, because this is when you're starting to to find more dead bodies than live ones. 4:30 uh, a.m. Mark Williams is removed from the rubble, and he's the last survivor um, who would be removed from the atrium alive. Um, last person to be found alive. Um, he, what was actually really interesting about that was that Dr. Wackerly. Um, stepped aside from assisting him due to exhaustion. He had finally reached the point at that night where he said, "You know what? Another trauma surgeon has to be in charge of this man. I, this survivor, I can't help anymore. I've just, I've, I've gone too far. I'm, I'm too tired. Somebody else needs to take care of him." Um, but he didn't find out until later that the victim was Mark Williams and that he knew Mark Williams. He was somebody that he had run track with in in high school. Um, so. You know, it was it was good that Mark Williams was able to survive, but after that, there was nobody who was pulled alive from the rubble. And actually, at um, 7.45, um, the last slab was removed from the atrium, the last slab of the uh, walkways, and 31 bodies were found underneath it. And that brought the death toll at that point to 111. Um, three more people would die over the next few days and, and weeks and months. Out of the victims, there were um, some notable names. Um, Frank Freeman and Roger Gribbsby were boyfriends who were attending the tea dance. Uh, They were both standing on the first floor. Roger was standing underneath the walkways when they collapsed. and Frank just narrowly missed being crushed. Uh, His toes, according to him, his toes were just touching the walkways after they fell. So he came very close to being seriously injured, but he, he just had some minor injuries. Um, a couple of um, pieces of, of concrete glass kind of fell and, and hurt his shoulder, um, but obviously Roger was missing, and he had no idea where he was. While he was in the hospital, uh, some police officers brought him a photo of Roger. Roger had been found underneath the wreckage with a broken neck. Um, later on... Uh, down the line uh what makes uh, frank um notable is that later on down the line he did help with the uh, memorial that was set up um but uh among the uh, and other victims there was also dalton grant uh dalton grant was a 11 year old boy um he went to the church the the tea dance with his family um the uh kind of the amusing thing is that in the in the minute-by-minute uh, minute documentary, he's he's interviewed, and he kind of says, you know, it's not exactly a place you really want to be when you're 11. You know, you don't want your parents to be like, you know, oh, go put on your church clothes. We're going to, a, you know, a tea dance at a hotel. So he was kind of, you know, kind of saying, like, you know, no 11-year-old wants to be at this tea dance. Um, when the, uh, the walkways collapsed, he and his mother were both trapped in the rebel Uh, she had two broken ankles and he had a broken pelvis. As he put it, my knees were by my ears. That was the, uh, the way he described it. Um, his mother was an ER nurse and she kept telling him not to fall asleep. Um, you know, they prayed and things like that. And, and, um, when they were, uh, you know, finally rescued, he actually, they, you could see, um, footage of him being interviewed, um, by the news, which is, you know, um, must have been a terrible thing for, for an 11-year-old to go through. Uh, but at least he lived. Um, another girl, um, an 11-year-old uh, named Pamela Coffey, went there with her father, Gerald Coffey. Uh, she, she was actually his youngest daughter, and he brought her to the dance. And they both died in the collapse. Um, she was the youngest victim. Uh, Mark Williams... Um, one of the other victims describes um, praying with a young girl who later died. So that was that was more than likely Pamela that he was praying with, and he as he tells it, he was um, uh, uh, he prayed with her, and then later on she she went silent, and and um, that would have been her. Mark Williams is actually, you know, like I said, he was the he uh, earlier he was the last one who was pulled out of the wreckage. Uh, he had shown up at the the tea dance. Um, not for the dance itself, but because he was just meeting a friend uh, for a drink before dinner. At the time that the uh, collapse happened, he was standing on the first floor getting himself a drink. Uh, He ended up being trapped under the north end of the um, skywalks, which would have been, you know, if you're looking at that glass ceiling, it would have been on your right. Uh, He was trapped in there in a space the size of a suitcase when he describes his injuries, I mean, it's, it's absolutely kind of dreadful. So if you want to skip ahead a little bit, um, but he, he describes his injuries as his left leg was pulled out of its socket. It was behind him across his back and his left leg was tucked behind his right ear. His right leg was tucked behind his left ear. Um, now the way that he describes it, Um, you know, in one documentary, he says it was across his chest and another documentary, he says it was behind his, um, back, uh, from the way that another witness describes it. It does seem like it was behind his back. Either way, it's, it's not good. It is not good at all. Um, basically his feet were behind his ears. Um, he kept reaching back to massage his feet to keep the blood flowing. He was pretty much, um, uh, trying to keep himself from losing his feet and his legs um, once they rescued him. And he says at, at one point in one of the uh, documentaries, he talks about duck hunting a lot. And he says at one point, you know, all I was thinking at that point was, oh, you know, how am I going to go duck hunting with one leg? Workers um, who were breaking apart the rubble uh, finally heard him after of what seemed like an eternity. And, uh, they nearly drilled into him with a jackhammer, trying to get to him. Uh, the first time they drilled, they went right between his arm and his side. Um, the third time that they drilled down, they went between his legs, and he he kind of says he kind of says at that point, what um, his thought was: they've triangulated me. Next, they'll go right through my back. But they didn't. Uh, they broke it apart. They took him out, and. You know, they said they pulled him out, and and he literally, like, his legs were tucked behind his ears. He was, he looked terrible. Um, He was the last survivor removed from the rubble at 4.30. After that, like I said, there was nobody else who was pulled out alive. Uh, When they got him to the hospital later on, um, he was found to have experienced severe kidney trauma. So, um, like I said at the beginning of the episode, um, his mother asked, you know, is he going to make it? And the doctor said, probably not. According to Mark, he heard later on that he doesn't really, it didn't really seem like he remembered it, but he said that he, um, he supposedly sat up with his two legs like they were, um, you know, screwed up like they were. He sat up and said, like, hell I will, I'm going to be out there on the first day of duck hunting season, um... And uh, it did actually turn out later on that he, he did actually get out there um, after months of physical therapy. He did get out there on the first day of duck hunting season to, to, um, on ducks at the duck blind. Uh, his, he, according to him, his physical therapist carried him out there. But, um, you know, he went through a lot and, um, you know, he was the last one pulled out alive after that um, you know obviously the investigation starts Um in the days following the disaster a lot went on um, on the night of july twenty-first um, to to twenty-second um, the debris from the second and fourth floor walkways uh... were labeled with a code up until that point to ident- identify where they were um, in the atrium and all of this was moved to a warehouse in another part of kansas city I mean, all this time they were clearing out wreckage and and kind of cleaning up a little bit. But that was when they started moving things out. On the night of July 22nd to the 23rd, uh, the third floor walkway was removed and taken to the warehouse as well. And before it was taken away, there were vibration measurements obtained by Crown before removal. So they could use that um, during the um, investigation. Uh, the hanger rods themselves were also removed from the ceiling, uh, from, moved from the ceiling, and taken to the warehouse. Um, but at that point, um, that took a few days. Uh, at this time, the National Bureau of Standards was called in to investigate. Uh, they were requested to come in by Mayor Berkeley, and they were led by Edward Frang, who was a, um, an engineer. Uh, two of those engineers were allowed to go to the warehouse and take photos. Um, they actually had to kind of kind of petitioned the court to say, you know, um, when it was all taken out of the, to the warehouse, um, the National Bureau of of Standards uh, investigators had just arrived and they kind of had to um, petition the court to to go and look at it. Um, Otherwise, their investigation was stalled in the water. And they went and they took photos and looked around and And they tested different um, theories as well. For example, there was a theory that came up that dancing on the walkways had caused the collapse. Uh, There were people who were being interviewed by reporters on the news, and they were saying things that, you know, attendees at the dance were being encouraged to dance on the walkways. You know, go up there, dance. And um, uh, this is where the footage that Michael Mahoney shot prior to the... um, prior to the disaster came in handy because he had had those establishing shots. You know, here's the, here's the musicians and here's the, the dancers and, 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 you know, here's this beautiful atrium. So they had footage of the walkways almost immediately before this disaster happened. So investigators were able not only to tell if people were dancing, but also how many people were on the walkways and what music was playing at the time. And they were able to test the music and find out that the treading frequency was slower. Basically, it was less than what it would have been to compare to the to the walkways. Basically, what it was was that wasn't a factor. The investigation of the National Bureau of Standards, uh, the way it came out, was that um, the weight limits, um, the load limit um, on the walkways, was uh, suspect from the very beginning the reasonable upper bound for the single span occupancy uh, was 16 to 20 people now like I said single span occupancy you have two walkways being held up by two sets of of hanger rods and the load is being distributed unevenly Um, the second floor walkway at the time of the collapse had 40 people on it and the fourth floor walkway had about 20 people Uh, now the original design had supported only 60% of the minimum load required by Kansas city building codes. That was the one with the, the 46 foot hanger rods that went from all the way from the ceiling to the second floor without stopping. But the new design carried only 30% of the minimum load. So that was already a problem from the very start. Um, this puts stress on those box beams on the fourth floor. Um, the weight of the walkways alone was enough to warp the box beans per testing done by the National Bureau of Standards. Um, there's footage in one of the, um, uh, one of the, the documentaries on it um, of them testing this, and you can see them pulling, um, you know, they they stick in the hanger rod and the the nut and the washer and all that, and they pull at it. And just from the weight of those walkways alone, it was kind of, you know, it warps these. But it doesn't break it until they add the weight of the people on the walkways. And that's what caused that box beam 9UE to fail. The connections themselves were never tested. Um, it, like I said, it, you know, just like at the beginning when, when the buck was being passed, um, Havens and Gillum kind of passed the buck on who should have done the testing. Um, Havens assumed that Gillum was doing it. Gillum assumed that Havens was doing it. Either way, it wasn't done. Um, not only that, of course, it, like I said before, the stiffeners wouldn't put, weren't put in, so that didn't help either. Um, but along with the National Bureau of Standards investigation, the Kansas, Kansas City Star... Um, decided the newspaper decided that they were going to have an investigation as well, so they employed engineer Wayne Lishka for an independent investigation. It was sort of like a secret investigation. Um, Wayne Lishka went into the hotel three days after the collapse when reporters were being allowed inside to examine the damage. Now, the reporters were only allowed to view the wreckage from about a hundred feet away but the star sent a photographer with a telephoto lens with Lishka to assist him. And like Gillum, Lishka immediately noticed those hanger rods still attached to the ceiling for the fourth floor walkway. And at that point, he kind of suspected exactly what the National Bureau of uh, Standards investigation would find out, which is that the, the hanger rods were not up to support supporting the walkways and the people that were on them uh so he contacted city hall to see the original blueprints for the hotel but he was told at the time that librarians were cataloging them so he had to wait uh when he finally did get to see the plans he recognized those changes the change in the connections and he realized that's where the problem lies um, when he was interviewed for one of the um documentaries that I watched he explained that the usual way to do connections like this was to take those c-shaped beams that I described um earlier uh the ones that they make the box beams out of where you take that ice sh- that you you know where you basically take an ice-shaped beam they you know the sort of beam that you imagine cut it down vertically down the middle and then kind of swap the sides weld them together and you have a square but what you're supposed to do, the usual way of doing it, is to take that I-beam with, you know, those two-shaped C-shaped beams like they are, and instead of switching them around and welding them, leave them where they are, back-to-back like that, and then stick the hanger rod between them. And that works as its own stiffener, and it doesn't need to have the other stiffeners in and it, and it holds up the weight. The box connection didn't have the strength to just support the walkways, and it shouldn't have been used. But they were easier to camouflage with plasterboard, so that's why they were used. February 3rd, 1984, uh, the Missouri Board of Architects, Professional Engineers, and Land Surveyors filed a complaint against Jack Gillum, Daniel Duncan, and the company itself the Gillum and Associates, which I believe at that point was already GCE International. But like I said, Gillum. Um, uh, the charges were of gross negligence, incompetence, misconduct, and unprofessional conduct in the practice of engineering. On November, um, In November of 1984, Gillum, Duncan, and the company itself were found guilty. Um, they lost their licenses to practice in the state of Missouri, and the company's certificate of authority as an engineering firm was revoked. Uh, That didn't mean that they couldn't practice otherwise um, in other states, but um, they just couldn't um, practice in Missouri anymore. Um, The American Society of Civil Engineering, uh, after this, adopted a report that stated that structural engineers have full responsibility for design projects. So um, basically it was on Gillum and Duncan and the company itself. Um, to be responsible for this. That said, um, Crown did end up paying $70 million in damages to victims and their families. The legacy of the disaster itself, um, if you um, go to Kansas City and you go to the Hyatt Regency, it's still there. Uh, The hotel itself is still there. The Skywalks, obviously, are not. Um, not in the way that they were before. Um, there is no walkway on the third or fourth floor anymore. And there is one for the second walkway floor, but this second floor skywalk is not held up by those kind of flimsy hanger rods anymore. It's actually held up by several solid cement support, um, columns. It, you know, the atrium is still a big part of that hotel though. It's a really pretty atrium uh, really nice place to to go but obviously it does kind of have um, you know if you do go in there and you do know what happened you, you can just imagine uh, the devastation and, and the tragedy that happened in there um, as for a memorial um, on November 12 uh, 2013 there was a dedication in Hospital Hill Park um, the um, uh, Crown and, and, and Hyatt and, and had gotten the city had gotten kind of gotten together and and, um, gotten this patch of land to um, erect a memorial Um, of victims families including Frank Freeman like I mentioned before um, raised the amount of money of um, it it was $550,000 to build this memorial and they worked hard to raise that money and and there's this the memorial itself is beautiful. It's it's kind of got this kind of abstract, swirly um, image on it. Uh, looks kind of uh, somebody described it. I uh, saw a description of it as is looking like dancing, and it seems apt considering what happened that day. Um, you know, it has the names of the people who died on it. Uh, it's a really beautiful memorial. I would I you know you can look it up on you know go google it and, and see the, the picture of it it's really pretty um, when it comes to this disaster i i um i find myself um i don't want to say that you know i find it amusing watching the before video i think i think that's kind of um what intrigues me about it is it feels it just it's just very weird to watch the video of the before when you have all these people and like you know you know the big thick Coke bottle glasses and the terrible hair and and you know the the late seventies early eighties you know fashions which are all awful, and um, you know there's something real, kind of amusing about it. And They're all doing these like dorky dances in a hotel to um, to swing music, you know, with this big band playing and and it. I mean. It, you think back to Dalton Grant with the 11-year-old who was who was stuck in there and and you can imagine why people would just be like i'm i'm not going to this this seems dorky but at the same time you know you see the atri- pictures of the atrium and the atrium itself is really beautiful and you know even though it is kind of design-wise at the time it was kind of you know 80s 70s 80s just in retrospect it's just kind of um And it still does kind of have that design aesthetic, which is not exactly modern. Um, I mean, the disaster itself is just... It's the kind of thing that... You kind of are surprised looking at the um, pictures of the walkways that nobody was afraid that it would happen. It just looks so delicate. Um, Even for... For you know walkways that you imagine must have been connected to the rest of of the um, of of the atrium by something other than these hanger rods, you would think that that there was more to it, and that was kind of the point of these hanger rods to make them look like they were delicate and and um, you know that they floated on air, which was what the impression that a lot of people got. But instead, you know, you look at them and. Um, now in, in retrospect, you can just you just get this chill that goes up. You see these old pictures of 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 them, and you just kind of think like why didn't anybody see it coming? It looks like it should have been something that somebody should have seen coming, and they should have because there were so many um, points at which human error could have been caught, and it wasn't. There were so many points at which somebody could have said, you know, Maybe we better check this connection. Maybe we better test to make sure this will work. Maybe we should put stiffeners into these box beams. Maybe we shouldn't use box beams. And nobody actually did anything, and that is kind of why this disaster is is so tragic. It it was at the time it was the worst structural um, um, disaster, structural engineering disaster in in America, um, up until nine eleven, and and. It, you know, it's it's kind of um, fascinating looking back on it because you kind of wonder why nobody um, thought to um, uh, nobody thought that it would collapse. That it, it looks like it would collapse. Um, you know, it looks like something where you you'd want to double double and triple check your your um, your numbers and your in test um, what you're doing to make sure that everything is safe because it doesn't seem like it would be. And unfortunately, it turned out that it wasn't. So that's the, the great tragedy of the, of the Kansas City Hyatt Regency Skywalk Collapse. Until next time, stay safe.